Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Daniel Dibb and Russ White. Russ is based in North Carolina and has been working with large-scale networks for more than 20 years and written a number of books, co-authored over 40 software patents, and spoken at many different venues around the world. His blog is called Network, and you can find it at ntwrk.guru. He is currently on the architecture team at LinkedIn, where he works on next-generation data center designs, complexity, security, and privacy. Daniel is based in Sweden and is currently senior network architect at Conscia NetSafe. Daniel has worked on some of the most demanding networks in Sweden and is committed to mentoring new and promising engineers and is a Cisco Learning Network VIP and a Cisco champion. You can find his blog called Lost in Transit at lostintransit.se. Russ and Daniel are the authors of the LeanPub book, Unintended Features, Thoughts on Thinking and Life as a Network Engineer. Their book is focused on helping people who are building careers in networking technology and helping them think about their knowledge base, skills, and experience in, in an informed way. As such, it's not a book so much about technology as it is a really valuable and generous contribution from experienced professionals who want to help other people improve their careers in either network engineering or information technology more generally. In this interview, we're going to talk about Russ and Daniel's professional interests, their books, their experience self-publishing using LeanPub, and at the very end, maybe one or two ways we can help improve LeanPub for them and for other authors. Um, I said Russ is based in North Carolina and Daniel is based in Sweden, um, but currently they're both coming to us uh, from uh, the Cisco Live uh, event in Las Vegas. Um, so thanks, guys, for being together uh, in the world uh, to do this and for being on the Lean Pub podcast. Thanks. I mean, I think you pretty much covered the whole thing, so we can just quit now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Russ. Um, well, Russ, I guess I guess why don't we start with you? Um, uh, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So if you could tell us how you first became interested in being a network engineer and how your career um, got you to the point where you are now at LinkedIn. Uh, so I actually kind of fell into it uh, accidentally. It wasn't uh, something I was actually planning on. I started my life doing graphic design and uh, doing electronic engineering and ended up in electronic engineering in the Air Force working on airfield systems, radar systems and VORs and TACANs and stuff. And somehow or another ended up in the small computer support center, uh, probably because I learned how to code and they needed a coder to do some odds and ends. So I ended up there building systems and fell into the project of helping replace the core network, the optical fiber ring at McGuire Air Force Base, and replace the telco switch, which is an old 1960s telco switch, for which our primary troubleshooting tool was WD-40 in the physical rotary switches in the frame. And wow. uh, we <laughs> it's pretty old, isn't it? Anyway, so so um, from there I went into networking intentionally. Uh, went to a small company, then went to BASF and worked there for a while. Then I moved to North Carolina on a lark with no job and ended up at Cisco Systems in the Technical Assistance Center. Um, I was at Cisco for 16 years. Then I went to VeriSign Labs after that because I thought it was time to move on and do something different. And then I was at Ericsson for two years working in the engineering area. And uh, by the way, when I ended Cisco, I was actually working in engineering. I was actually working on the coding side of things rather than the network design side of things. Specifically, I was kind of in a mixed role in the engineering department doing coding and uh, network design and stuff. And then uh, from Ericsson, I got to know some folks at LinkedIn, and they pulled me over on the architecture team to uh, do next-gen network design, next-gen data center, hyperscale design, which has been really interesting and fun so far. Yeah, I was wondering, um, uh, I mean, a lot of people listening, many of our listeners are, are themselves um, software engineers, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what 
I mean, Dan, Daniel, actually, I'll, I'll ask you a similar question about from your career um, later. But um, what's uh, what's a, a day in the life like for um, someone who's doing network design at LinkedIn? Uh, so LinkedIn's a little bit different because we're a hyperscaler. So we don't do normal network design. It's kind of hard to explain, but hyperscalers, we're all about simplicity and just getting a lot of boxes into a single data center and figuring out how to net- automate the network as much as possible. So um, it's kind of a little bit odd and different from doing enterprise design and service provider design or transit service provider design, which I've done before as well in that we're much more concerned about how our control plane interacts with uh, the apps guys and the application side and the and the micro segmentation and security and stuff like that. So I have a little bit more interaction with application and, and the uh, the security house security guys and et cetera than I would possibly at, at an enterprise shop. Uh, but it's also very interesting in that I'm also more involved in how the sheet metal is bent and what type of chipsets we're using and things like that, which you don't normally get into necessarily on the enterprise side. So Dana life for me is mostly throwing interesting ideas on the whiteboard, see if we can make them stick, uh, talking to partners, talking to vendors, figuring out how we can get where we want to be from a five-year plan perspective, uh, helping the ops guys understand what we're trying to do, uh, doing training. And for me, I do a lot of IETF work, which is in – LinkedIn's best interests and BGP security and talking to people in that world on a regular basis, trying to figure out how LinkedIn participates in the larger community rather than just being our own little closed-in network that nobody really pays attention to. Oh, well, thanks for that. That's a really, really great answer. Um, uh, I, uh, Daniel, I was wondering if maybe uh, now it's your turn. Um, uh, what's, what's, your, what's your origin story and, and where are you in your career right now? Okay, so uh, I guess my my background came from growing up uh, with the Nintendo and everything. Then I started to get an interest in computers, so I I was using like the Commodore 64 and then the Amiga, and then I moved on to to the PC world. And then I like progressed from uh, through school, uh, technical education, and then I moved on to the university, and I found like an interesting program there that uh, and the university was uh, Cisco Academy so that's how I kind of got involved into the networking world and uh, I kind of quite quite fast figured out that uh, this was really interesting and that was it was something that I wanted to work on in the future so uh, I completed uh, the program in the university for three years and then I started my career as a network engineer in the networking industry, working for a service provider at first, and then I kind of like uh, moved on to to another role where I also did a bit of design and working on different customer projects, and uh, about a year ago, I ended up working for Concha NetSafe, so I'm working as a network architect, meeting with customers and discussing designs, doing a lot of writing and diagramming and explaining to people and also acting as a subject matter expert in different technologies, helping my customers on different projects. And yeah, so I guess that's where I'm at right now. Thanks very much. Um, uh, one, one question I like to ask um, people who've um, formally studied IT is, um, do you think if you were to go back, um, would you do it again? And it, I'm asking because I find that actually about half of the people that I speak to 
um, say, who, who half of the people who I, I speak to did have a formal education in IT um, at university and half didn't. And about half of those who did have a formal education in IT say they wouldn't do it if they went back. Um, and I was wondering if, if, you would, if you would do it again. Yeah, from my pers perspective, I would definitely do it again. And uh, that's mainly because of two reasons. And the first reason would be that it's a lot about the soft skills you learn at the universi university. So you learn how to consume information, digest it, and, and do like proper writing, formatting. And those, those are skills that are really useful if you want to like move into an architecture role in the future. And the second reason is that uh, I really like the way they had had the program set up with with a lot of hands-on and stuff. So we actually got to do uh, a lot of work on real devices and and learn from yeah from the basics how to cable stuff, how to configure stuff, and so I think it, it's a good way to learn the basics. And so yeah, I, I guess. Um, uh things might be a little bit different in a world where you're, you're dealing with very complex, you're going to be given the responsibility of dealing with very complex networks with very large and established organizations as opposed to perhaps being a, a, a developer for a startup. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, Russ, um, uh, on the subject of education, um, I saw from your, one of your bios that um, I think you're working on a PhD right now? Yeah, I'm working on a PhD in philosophy. I was at dinner Monday night and or Sunday night, and somebody asked me, "So, how does a philosophy degree make you a better engineer?" Huh. My answer was, "Why do I always need to be a better engineer? Maybe I just need to be a better person." <laughs> so, but but my answer for that is pretty much the same as Daniel's. You know, doing a PhD has has helped me understand a lot more about ethics and about uh, how the technology is applied, and it's also helped me a lot with my research skills and writing skills and, and just having the tenacity to go on and do what needs to be done and to be more of a whole person. Uh, you know, I'm asked all the time, should I get my certification or should I get my degree? I always say both. And then people say, well, you know, should I get my third CCDIE or should I get my CCDE or should I get my degree? And I always say, if you have a CCIE and a CCDE, go on and get a degree. Don't, don't continue piling up certifications spread out and do other things because those are important things to do in your life. Yeah, I've got to say I'm, uh, I'm uh, personally very much on the same side as both of you um, uh, on, this, on this question. I, I got a doctorate in English literature before becoming an investment banker. Um, and, you know, to me, the, the value of, of, I mean, in addition to the things that both of you have said, the value of taking a few years um, to engage with, uh, a large, uh, a highly, in a highly focused way with a large subject um, is in itself um, just inherently rewarding and, and informs everything else one does in one's life. Um, and there's, there's, no, there's no substitute for that, I, I would say. Yeah. I would call that developing intellectual virtue. Hmm. To go to Aristotelian terms, you know, since I'm doing philosophy, you always have to find a way to work Aristotle and Plato into this. But <laughs> <laughs> this, this whole concept of intellectual virtue, the ability to learn how to focus and to learn how to learn, I mean, to learn how to consume information very quickly. And, and I think that's part of what Daniel and I are trying to address in this book is that, you know, we, we engineers, we tend to go, oh, I know how to, I know how to work with CLI. I'm kind of done now. Well, no, you're not really done now. Yeah, and on, on that subject, um, you, you've got a, a section on um, 
culture and there's a story about General Howe's dog and I was wondering if um if one of you wouldn't mind telling that that story and 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 explaining why it's why it's so important. Yes, it's this little bitty book called General Howe's Dog that you can find that explains the whole thing, but essentially at one point General Howe and General Washington in the American Revolution for anybody who's not up on their history were facing each other over a battlefield and um General Howe's dog which was some sort of a small terrier uh, actually slipped across the battle lines and was captured as an enemy combatant <laughs> and, and and taken to uh, I guess he was biting the soldiers heels or something anyway so he was taken to General Washington and General Washington actually sent a soldier back under flag of truce with a very very nice letter you can read the whole thing it's available online um, explaining that they had found this dog and someone had recognized it as General Howe's dog and, and returning it to him. And I think the significance of that in, in our world is we get really combative about what we believe in and what we do. And if you can actually find two people who are fighting each other literally to the death and sending men to their death, but that yet they have the humanity to figure out how to return one another's dogs with a nice note under under sign of truce, I think maybe we can all learn how to get along better and uh, not, not treat each other so nasty in the middle of big arguments over technology and stuff. And you had a specific experience you related that to. I think I think it was you, Russ, in your career in the Air Force. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I think that was the uh, Banyan Vines fight in the at the McGuire Air Force Base. We were deeply involved in a an absolutely huge knockdown dragout fight between Banyan Vines and Novell Netware. And um, I was on the Banyan Vines side, believe it or not, even though I was a CNE at the time. And uh, I was studying for my CBE, but I thought Vines was a better technology and. So did pretty much everybody else on on McGuire Air Force Base, but we were basically overruled by the headquarters, and they said, "No, you thou shalt use network netware," and it actually ended up ending several people's careers uh, over it because the reaction on it was so so bad. And I, I wonder sometimes, I think part of that was just political scapegoating, but sometimes I think that's just because we get emotionally invested in technologies in ways that is really, really unhealthy and techn technical solutions in ways that are really, really unhealthy. And it helps really a lot if you can disengage from that and just realize it's a tool. It's just a tool. It's nothing else. You know, you don't fall in love with your hammer and you shouldn't fall in love with your router. And what, what does it mean to have your career ended um, in the Air Force? I'm actually curious about that. When I read that, when I read that in the book, I'm not exactly sure what, what that means. Um, well, people were given low uh, performance reviews for their participation in the whole project on the Vine side, which essentially stops you from ever getting a promotion again. So the uh, next time you get to a re-up, re like a re, like you're going to re-sign up or you know recontract with the Air Force, re-enlist, you might as well not bother because your career is is stopped. You're dead. And and why do pe why do you think people you know fall in love with their router? <laughs> Uh, because it's such a beautiful shade of blue. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I think that this is this is an ownership issue, and I think that it's it's healthy in some ways. You know, there's there's a pride in building a really nice building. If you're a carpenter, you go out and you build a really nice building. Or if you're an artist, you draw a really really beautiful picture. And there's there's pride of ownership in that that's really important that drives you to excel. And that's really good. So in a techn technology situation, it's really good to fall in love with the technology enough that you really, really focus on 
how am I going to do an excellent job and do the best I can to make this technology fit in my network and do the best job that I can? But the problem is, is that you need to be emotionally detachable in a way that allows you to say, okay, in the end, I wasn't right. That wasn't the best solution. Or even if it was the best solution, I was overruled by somebody who thinks they know better. So I'm just going to do my best with what I have. Um, so I think it's more a matter of um, if you build the house, you own it. And because you own it and you built it, you have an emotional attachment to the work that you've done in that space. And I think that's the way we treat technology. Um, Daniel, there's a section in the book on personal integrity. Um, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about um, what, what the both of you are saying in that section and how it relates to one's career as a network engineer. Yeah, uh, I think personal integrity is uh, a lot about yeah having having values that you follow. So uh, you should do do learning uh, in a proper way, not try to take shortcuts. And uh, because if you do that, you'll you'll end up being punished later. Because every time you try to understand a new technology, technology it's often based a lot on previous technology. So. If you take your time uh, in the start and, and learn the basics and learn the protocols, you'll, you'll do a lot better further into your career. Great, great. Um, I, actually, I actually had a question that's specific about um, Cisco. Uh, I, I interviewed um, Nick Russo, who I believe uh, both of you know um, very recently. Um, he's got a new Lean Pub book as well. Um, and uh, so, um, Daniel, for example, you, you work for um, Conscient NetSafe in Sweden, but here you are in Las Vegas um, uh, at, a, at a Cisco conference. And I was just curious about how that, how that relationship works. Yeah, so uh, we're a systems integrator and a Cisco Gold partner. So obviously we try to keep up with everything Cisco is pushing out. So we, we usually have like four or five guys every year that that uh, goes to the U.S. conference to, to pick up what's new and what's trending, and then we try to bring that knowledge back home and uh, train, train our other staff so that they get up to speed on those technologies as well. So, yeah, always trying to stay ahead of the, of the curve and seeing what's new. Yeah, and um, when we were speaking just before we, we started this interview, um, Russ, I think you mentioned that there were 25,000 people um, there at the, at the U.S. conference? Well, I actually don't know what the number is this year. I know last year it was 25,000, and I think it's probably that size or larger this year. I haven't heard an official number. But I know that they've taken up the convention, the Mandalay Bay Convention Center, and it is – they've taken up every stitch of the floor space on the entire convention center, and it's huge. If someone um, listening was considering going into uh, a career in network engineering, I mean it sounds like obviously it's a massive – industry um, would you recommend it is it something that that's that's growing yeah I think uh, I think it's a really really nice industry to be in because uh, there's a lot of things happening right now um, in the last couple of years it's really starting to pick up pace with all the new technologies and trying to move towards more of automation and software defined networks and everything so uh, it's kind of an interesting place to be, a bit scary at the same time, but also uh, really rewarding if you, if you take the time to, to learn these new technologies. And, uh, yeah. 
Why, why is it um, scary? Yeah, because if you have like a current set of skills and then there's new job roles that's asking for new kind of skills and if, if you don't have them yet, it can be like, yeah, it can feel a bit scary to, uh, if, you, if you can learn those new skills or not. So, Yeah, in the networking industry, there's a couple of things we always say. One is nobody has a job more than two years. I mean... You just don't know what's going to be in two years, so you just might as well plot your own career path and not be too freaked out about or too concentrated on working for one company for the rest of your life. Because it's, it might happen, and that would be nice, but it might not happen. So emotionally prepare yourself for that not to happen. And the second thing is we always have this thing about the half-life of any skill being about two and a half years. So anything you learn today is generally useful for about two and a half years and it starts to taper off in its usefulness. In about five to seven and a half years, it's generally old enough that no one cares anymore. And this actually speaks to the whole concept of what Daniel was talking about before. When you learn a protocol or when you learn something from new, you need to learn the theory and try to understand it and understand it at a level that helps you relate it to other things so that you're actually building a level of knowledge that's not just surface knowledge. I just don't know how to configure something. I actually know how it works. So that a new technology comes along that's similar, I can take that knowledge that I have and I can actually push it into the new concept or the new technology without having to relearn a whole lot of information. Um, going way back, Russ, um, can you think of an example of something that was extremely important at the beginning of your career that has disappeared maybe because of that, that two and a half year half-life? <laughs> How many do you want? X25, Token Ring, uh, Old Sonnet, although Sonnet's still around today, but it's really more DWDM, and uh, let's see, uh, ATM, oh my goodness, ATM is, is like in horrors. Uh, I first learned, when I first learned networking, we were actually using Token Bus and Tap Ethernet, ThickNet, which is no longer, doesn't exist anymore, and... You know, we were using um, Tommy Codrand ArcNet stuff, which is so far gone that nobody even knows what I'm talking about when I say Thomas Conrad ArcNet any longer. So, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of these things. But to make that example full, if you think about it, Tommy Conrad ArcNet stuff or ArcNet actually worked a certain way on the wire. It used a certain signaling pattern and, and carried things in a particular way and stuff like that. Well, those things really haven't changed even with DWDM and things like that, the principles are still the same. The bits are different. The techniques are a little bit different, but the basic principles are the same. So in learning ArcNet in depth, I've actually, in Ethernet, ThickNet in depth, I've actually been able to apply that general concept of knowledge to everything I've learned since then, and as far as physical media goes. Great. Um, you guys will have to forgive me if maybe one or two of the next questions I ask you are actually totally irrelevant because I'm not an expert in your field, but um, when uh, one of you mentioned something about uh, scariness, um, I was reminded of a recent pub table conversation that I had where the concept of, you know, a giant solar flare destroying all the networks came up. I'm sure you've probably heard that one. It's out there in the popular culture um, that, you know, something, something can happen that can fry all of our networks. Is that now I've got two experts. And so I want to ask for all the pub table conspirators out there. Is that true? <laughs> well, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh no, <laughs> um, and and, uh, and and why is that? Why is that true? Well, every piece of wire acts as an antenna, and if you get enough power on the wire, you can fry the tran- the receiver that's attached to that wire. So if you get a large enough solar flare or what's called an EMP, whether it's natural or man-made or whatever the case might be, you can actually fry all the receivers on all the wires in the entire world or in a particular region pretty quickly, which would take all the networks down. Now, you know, you try to do things like using shield cables and stuff like that, and there's lots of ways you can try to work around it, but for the most part, these things are so fast and so powerful that it's very, very difficult to... Uh, counter them. There's actually an incident in U.S. history where this kind of thing happened in the 1800s, and it took out all the telegraph receivers. In the so country. it took the entire tele in the country. It, it took down the entire telegraph network in the country, just this way. And so, so is, is this a once in a century, or a once in a millennia, or a once in a, a kind of uh, epoch kind of event? It's a very good question, and I don't think anybody actually knows the answer to it. Okay. Okay. Well, now we all can right. all be a little bit scared. Yeah, I've seen some, uh, I know that Russ has worked with radars as well, and I've seen some incidents in that in that space, and uh, I think it's like somewhere around every six to eight years they have some kind of incident due to like the solar energy affecting the radars. So hmm. it and, can happen. And would it, I mean, affect undersea internet cables? Hmm, not sure about that. I doubt it, but... okay. Oh, well, that's, well, thank you very much for answering, <laughs> answering that question. Um, I was wondering if, if either, either one or, or both of you has an opinion about how the world will change for the general consumer uh, if and when we get to a point where we've all got gigabit, gigabit per second connections. Uh, wow, tough question. <laughs> um, so we'll all be uploading videos, and there'll be so many videos, none of us can watch them. <laughs> <laughs> Live streaming all the cats in the world at once or something yes, like that's, that. Yes, that's exactly right. We'll all, put, we'll all put little cameras on our cats so we can all watch each other's cats all the time. And no one will be watching anyway except the other cats. I don't know. You, know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you almost wonder how much more information we can tolerate. It's, we're already sipping from a fire hose, and I just wonder how much more we can tolerate. I mean, you think, well, there'll be machine to machine, sure, but then that's almost scary too, right? Because now I have machines looking at things that I'm not looking at and making decisions about things that I'm not sure I want them making decisions about. <laughs> so are you are you on uh, the Elon Musk sort of Stephen Hawking side of worry about AI then, Russ? Uh, yeah, actually I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a, hard, a really hard question, and I think it is something that um, – people should be concerned about right well go back to philosophy right that's one of the things we all know we all know our our networks and we know our technologies but we don't think about the ethical impacts of those things and uh what it means philosophically and so and culturally and so we tend to just run off and go do what we can do and we don't think about what we ought to be doing so that's why one of the reasons i find philosophy so fascinating on, on that um topic what what is the subject of your of your thesis uh, if, if you've decided one yet. Oh, wow. Thesis, dissertation or degree? The degree is in apologetics and culture. The dissertation is in the unintended side effects of the uh, the technological revolution, as a matter of fact. That's actually what I'm writing in. And what are some of those um, unintended effects that you'll be that you'll be focusing on? 
Um, so I'm looking at things like the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Panopticon and how people change under observation and how that impacts our social, our social interactions on a personal level. Uh, like my professor, my major professor actually will not buy things from online retailers because he values the personal interaction of actually walking into a store, even if he doesn't know the person on the other side of the cash register at a personal level. He just values that human interaction so much that he refuses to do a lot of things online as far as buying goes. So I'm trying to look at those types of things and look at how communities react and whether or not it fragments communities or whether how it well, in what ways does it solidify communities and what ways does it fragment communities? And then going beyond that, like are there so that's the problem side of it, but maybe eventually start thinking about, well, how do you try to humiliate some of this? How do you actually try to, to counter this in a way that's intelligent, or can it be countered? I'm not really even sure it can be, but... Yeah, you mentioned the, the concept of the panopticon, and for anyone um, listening who's unfamiliar with that idea, it was developed by Jeremy Bentham, I think, in the late 18th century, maybe the, maybe the early 19th century, and if you've ever seen an image of a, of a prison where there's a guard that's in the shape of a circle and there's a guard in the center who can just kind of turn around and then see all the cells uh, arranged around the periphery of the circle, um, that's a panopticon and the idea is, or one version of a panopticon and the idea is that um, you can make it so that everyone can be simultaneously observed. I guess this is one, one way of explaining it. Um, so Russ, with, guess, without without the guard being observed, that's the interesting right. thing. Is the original one was set up with all these mirrors and stuff. Well, it was never really built, but it was designed with mirrors and stuff so that the prisoners could never tell when they were being observed. But the guard could one guard could observe every prisoner. That's right. I forgot that that very important um, part of it. Yeah, that the 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 sort of brilliant and terrifying efficiency of the idea was yes, based on the idea that the guard couldn't be seen by the prisoners themselves. So. They, they could actually be in a situation where they're not being watched, but they don't know. So they have to behave as though they're always being watched. Right. Um, and this is a fascinating metaphor and I think extremely relevant in our era where, um, you know, people are walking around not so much with Google Glass, although that might come back now that Pokemon Go is a thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but people are walking around with their phones everywhere and those phones have cameras on them. Um, and, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of, an analogous way, uh, anything you do on social media can immediately make you a global um, villain or celebrity, um, and uh, because everyone can suddenly see it. So you, you, there is a sense in which in our world nowadays, we, you know, I guess unless we've we've plugged out in some way or we're avoiding people, we we sort of all have to act um, like we're being watched. Um, and I right. guess I yeah. guess I guess. Um, there might be um, a connection between that and, and what you guys are writing about in your book in your way, which is it's, a, it's sort of a, a set of guidelines for how to behave in a professional context <laughs> where one does need to act like everything one does is going to be assessed and is being watched. I guess there's yeah. not a question in there, <laughs> uh, more of an observation. Um, but yeah, on that note, um, what, uh, what led the both of you to blog about these subjects and then to get together and um write put together a book about it i guess daniel if you if you wouldn't mind answering that that question yeah sure Len. so uh we've both been blogging for several years and i i kind of started out blogging when i started studying for my cce and as i 
progressed in my career, I got more interested in, in network design and architecture and more about uh, some of the soft skills. And I noticed that there, there wasn't a lot of people writing about these things. And I thought that was like uh, some of the things that were missing uh, for people to be able to, to get the information on how to develop, develop their careers and their, uh, their thinking. And then uh, I started to get to know Russ and I had noticed that he, he was like the main, main guy writing about these things, like the general house story and these kind of interesting uh, blogs about how to, to think. And uh, I got in contact with him and uh, asked if he wanted to, to do some writing and that's how we got started. So we started to uh, take all of the stuff we had already written and then we did some new writing and starting to edit it. So. Uh, so it could flow a bit better in a book form, and and hopefully people find it useful. I've, we've already received some some feedback from people that that is kind of some unique content and that they're enjoying it. So hopefully it's like a a, a decent sized book that's easy to consume and that will help you progress in your career and thinking. And that's that's the goal of the book, I think. So. And if you had some advice to give to any uh, you know, budding engineers listening to this podcast, um, if you could just get one thing into their heads um, at the beginning of their career, what might, what might that be? I think that goes back to what we mentioned earlier to like, uh, take your learning seriously and uh, learn, learn the protocol so that you can apply new knowledge later. And uh, yeah, think, try to think about why things uh, work in a certain way and not just... Uh, learning the bits and bytes about things because then you'll like that will keep you from progressing your career as as rapid, rapidly as you could be if you were thinking about these things. Um, Russ, I was wondering you you've written um, a few a few books and you say um, and and also you've um, you've co-authored more than forty patents, um, software patents, and I was wondering if you um, wouldn't mind telling us a little story about maybe one of the one of the bigger challenges that you've had. In your career, that you where you overcame something, a, oh, a challenge, a challenge. That's a very that is that is a hard question. Um, so let me think. You know, in the soft skill side, one of the hardest things for me to overcome is I'm actually a pretty big introvert, and so I've had to school myself, uh, particularly in public speaking. I started doing public speaking maybe. Uh, 20 years ago almost now and it's still nerve-wracking many times when you're when you're up there dealing with things so i think one challenge i've had to overcome in my life and and is that this whole thing of just not liking crowds and not liking being in front of people and speaking uh, which i have come to peace with i'm okay with it and and the biggest way i did it was just you know if you're afraid of heights you go to the empire state building and you walk out on that glass thing and you look down and you go hey, you know, I did that and nothing happened. I didn't fall and I'm okay, so maybe heights aren't necessarily so bad. And I wouldn't say it's that easy to overcome, but um, what I have found is when I face challenges like that, I just need to practice and and be intentional about it and to, to be intentional about what I'm learning. Uh, so I think that's that's one thing is, you know, when I, when I first started, I was really afraid of being in front of people and being around and being in big crowds, and I went to the ITF, and I pushed myself to go to the microphone and make comments, and I was called stupid, and I'm still called stupid today, so that's okay. I don't really care anymore, though. 
And uh, so I think that's I think that's one of those things that you have to overcome. Uh, the emotional connection to your work. The first time I wrote a book, you know, you almost feel like crying the first time it comes back from an editor and it's all completely red. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so uh, you go through that a couple of times and, and you just have to learn how to emotionally detach yourself from those situations enough that you can work effectively and to be good. So I think those are those are the types of things that I think I've had to overcome in my career that have taught me more about being consistent and being intentional in what I'm learning and how I'm learning. Um, there's technical challenges. I mean, there's always technical challenges that you run into, and it's that same skill set. You just you just got to pursue and 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 just keep going and and keep trying to learn things to to get to the point where you feel like you're skillful enough to actually do the job. And by the way, we all feel like imposters. I don't know if anybody has ever brought that up on your podcast, but every engineer in the world feels like an imposter. So if you have an, a listener out there who's listening to this podcast and says, yeah, but I'm not as smart as you. Yeah, well, I'm not as smart as you think I am either. So it's fine. <laughs> They're all imposters. That's really interesting. I don't know if anyone has has brought that up before. Um, uh, on that on that note, I was, I was going to ask, um, I mean, one of the things about about um, you know, the people who come to Lean Pub and who we then interview on the podcast is that they're they're like the both of you. They're they're sort of writing and 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 whether whether it's easy or not putting themselves in public um, and being you know called up to uh, speak at conferences um, and things like that. And I was wondering, is that I, I just I'm just asking as a basic out of total ignorance, is that conventional for people developing careers? Um, in your field to do what the both of you are doing, like blogging and making books and speaking at conferences and things like that? Or does that make you exceptions? <laughs> and you can, well, you can brag if you want. Uh, I think blogging is probably a lot more common than writing a book. Writing a book takes a lot more commitment and uh, it can yeah, it can be challenging, like Russ mentioned, to like go through all of the editing and stuff. And Normally, it's not very <laughs> rewarding financially either, unless you're like writing something for the masses. So, so people don't really see a, a big return on investment from a purely financial perspective. But, but on the on the other side, you go through a, a real like learning process, and and also it can be be, not, be a good way to meet with people and to yeah uh, learn to connect with other people and uh, also could be nice to put on your resume that that you've published something yeah and uh did you um did you both uh go self-impose an editing process um on yourselves for 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 um this book or or did you sort of get the opportunity to forego some of that this time around yeah i think i think we we kind of cross-edited each other's work in a way that was helpful um, finding things that need to be fixed and making it flow better, uh, you know, is, is it, that's a skill in and of itself. So we actually did not hire an editor, but we did cross edit and we did pay attention to what we were trying to do a little more carefully than we might have perhaps with a blog post or something like that. Oh, great. Thanks very much. That, that kind of, um, practical knowledge is really important to people, um, who are, who are, who are setting out to write books and to know that it can be, it can be achieved that way and that you can get yeah. the quality work in the end. 
Yeah, I think it's important if you're doing co-authors to have each person cross-read the other person's material and edit it because you want to get as close as you can to one voice in that situation, which is pretty difficult to achieve in a lot of cases. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, I can only I can only imagine how the interaction must have to work in order to in order to write a book um, with someone else that way. Um, I uh, I have one 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 question um, about uh, sort of selfish question to ask both of you about um, LeanPub and it's um, you know th now that I've got you here, um, if there was one thing we could if you could uh, wave a magic wand and have us build a feature for you or fix a problem for you. Um, what would you ask for? Hmm. <laughs> it, the answer hmm. can be nothing. I mean, that would be kind of fun I, from our perspective. I think. I think from the publishing end, it it works really well. I mean, you know, you could guarantee each author ten thousand sales, but I don't see how you're going to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> we'd we'd love to be able to do that. <laughs> um. Uh, I think it's been easy to work on the platform and uh, it's nice when you're co-authoring something because some of the other platforms won't let you do that easily and split the the income and stuff so yeah oh thanks uh, for that yeah that's something we don't think about all that much it's just something we we built um when it was pulled out of us by people asking and we're like well of course people should be able to co-author books easily um i guess i just have one one last um uh, and I'm switching subjects uh, pretty dramatically, but um, one one last question about um, your your work um, is related to um, I guess energy sustainability is something that people read about in the media when it comes to network architecture. Um, is that something that both or either of you uh, takes into account in 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 your work? Do you mean like? Um... Green IT or yeah. something like that. Yeah, like do, is it is I I mean that I mean that in a, a very straightforward you know, from a place of no knowledge perspective. I mean, is that something that day to day one has to build into one's designs or concerns? Mm, well, um, uh, I've seen some some cases where we could like propose to a customer that they buy new switches and the power savings alone would like. Uh, uh, they would have a return on investment for like five years just by the power alone. So, so that's kind of a good way to both be a bit more environmentally friendly and uh, save some money as well. So there's there's definitely some use cases for it. Yeah, and in, in the hyperscale environment, of course, the data centers are built all around energy usage is a is a huge huge deal for us. How much energy we use per server per you know per amount of compute process type of thing so it's it's a very we're very tightly controlled in our data centers on how much energy we use to do a particular task okay well um thanks very much guys for taking time away from the exciting conference to uh to talk to me um, <laughs> i really appreciated it um i think uh, i i mean i certainly learned a lot and it was great great to have such a wide-ranging discussion about um about so many things. Um, uh, so yeah, thanks very much for um, taking part in the interview and for um, being LeanPub authors. Thank you, Len. Thank you, Len. This was great. Thanks.